Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19 as we come back to this passage dealing with an important topic of marriage and, and divorce. And I have to confess at the beginning the sort of conflict that I feel in addressing these issues because on one hand, I, like you, know so intimately how people are affected by the issue of divorce. Some of you sitting here today have been through that extremely painful experience. It has fractured your home, affected your relationships, altered the course of your life, and left a profound impact on your heart and mind. It's easily the most devastating experience you've ever had, and the pain never fully goes away, and we understand that. And I understand that to even address these issues from the pulpit is in some ways to open up old wounds and in certain ways make you relive painful experiences that you would maybe rather not have to think about. In some ways, I'm grateful that Matthew 19 follows after Matthew 18, where Jesus gave us that extensive discussion about forgiveness, because it's right on the heels of this parable of a man being forgiven this unimaginable sum of money that we can be freshly reminded of God's grace and mercy even in these kinds of situations that no matter what you've been through no matter what decisions you have made or no matter what things have happened to you that were out of your control that God's grace is so magnanimous and abundant his restoring power is so extensive that he heals wounds and he restores fellowship and he brings about glory and and goodness and blessing even through sometimes our own misdeeds. And so we come to address these issues even though we know that they are sometimes difficult to address. They're difficult for some of us who haven't been divorced because we have been touched by divorce in other ways. Uh, I myself grew up in a home that was a broken home. My parents divorced. In fact, multiple times they divorced as I was growing up. And we all felt the pain of that, watching them go through that, or even the difficulty that we had navigating all the complexity of the relationships and the, and, and the, the, the outcome of those kinds of complexities. Some of you have even had the pain of watching your children go through a divorce and understanding the wounds that cut so deep and you wished that somehow, some way that you could shield them and protect them or maybe uh, soothe them, but you know that the cuts are so deep and so profound that they're even beyond your reach. For some of you, it's just friends. You've walked through them with them through the valleys, through the darkness, the long conversations and the, uh, the, the difficult seasons, tumultuous times where you wanted to bring them comfort and you wanted to bring them your sort of healing balm. And I understand the tendency is always then when you're dealing with these kinds of loved ones to not want to bring more pain. You don't necessarily want to add to what is already their struggles, internal struggles and external struggles, the kind of the kind of uh, rejection that they already feel maybe from a spouse, and then the kind of guilt and shame that they're feeling in their heart. We love them and don't want to bring any unnecessary guilt or shame. And so there's an impulse, I understand, to always be encouraging and supportive and affirming and never really touch on the issues of morality and ethics or righteousness and 
unrighteousness, the rightness and the wrongness of divorce. But in spite of all those sort of pitfalls, we understand that that divorce would only be perpetuated if we didn't speak to the real standard of God's design for marriage. To suppress the truth of marriage is just to capitulate to what is already the cultural trend. Marriage is, in a very special way, the purview of the church. It is a religious institution. It is a theological institution. I know that that concept is is, uh, not popular today in the modern era where the state has attempted to take over as the governing body of marriages. But even that, you have to understand, is a fairly recent phenomenon In fact, it wasn't until 1836 in England and Wales that the state, for the first time ever, decided that they were going to issue marriage licenses. In many states in in the United States, it was even after that. It wasn't until the 20th century that civil authorities started to grant marriage licenses. Prior to that, it had always been the prerogative of the church to establish marriage who was married and who was not. The licensing and the recognition came from the church. And we understand that because we started to see, as we started to see last week in Matthew chapter 19, that marriage was established by God. It is, in its fundamental sense, a religious and a theological institution, not a civil institution. And we started to, to examine this in Matthew 19, taking note of, of this interaction between Jesus and some Pharisees and some certain insights that this passage gives to us on the issue of marriage and divorce, beginning, you may remember, in the first three verses with the attack, the, the uh, assault on God's design for marriage. It's always been under assault. And Jesus finds himself in a confrontation from the Pharisees who themselves are taking their place in a long line of people who were attempting to undermine marriage, to establish uh, a, a practice of easy divorce, which basically undercut God's original design. Jesus responds to their tactics then in verses four through six by pointing them beyond their original question about marriage and divorce, pointing them back to God's original design in the Garden of Eden, a design that was grounded in the image of God to unite men and women in marriage. This is the way He created marriage. He created it out of His design for humanity. At the very level of His creation of humanity. He created us, Jesus says in verse 4, male and female in the beginning. And we saw how marriage then is embedded in the idea of the very creation of humanity. In fact, in that verse, it's followed in the, in the next verse in Genesis chapter 1 with a, a statement, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. And so we understand that the institution of marriage flows directly out of that created order of male and female. The union of men and women are a part of God's design 
in order to reflect Him in every way in creation. Not only through the the sort of dominion work that we do, going out and taking control, if you will, or, or subduing the resources of the world and bringing them uh, into a, a capacity of benefit and blessing for, for ourselves. That was part of the mandate. But even the other element of that, the pro, procreative element of that, coming together as men and women and forming new human beings who reflect God's image. We saw that God created men and women, but He created with them with this distinctive design and differentiation. In fact, uh, even the sequencing of it, as we mentioned last week, was intentional. God created Adam alone, knowing that that was not the, the completion of the work. In fact, He said it's not good for man to be alone. He observed the situation and He understood that it wasn't the perfect design just to have a man or multiple men or any of those sort of scenarios, he understood that it wasn't the perfect design until he had created woman. And so in a a sequence of events that were intended to not only complete God's created order, but to instruct us as to how it is to function, we see God doing this work and creating and communicating several truths through it. These uh, were, on one hand, biological truths. On the other hand, social truths. The biological truth that God uh, declared humanity to be in two forms, male and female, and He created them that way. And then the social truths that come from the sequencing of all this. Adam created first as the primogenitor of all humanity, So that as everything unfolds, we clearly understand that Adam was the initial representative of humanity. He himself was the initial representative of humanity. In fact, Paul will later say that in spite of the fact that Eve was the one that Satan originally tempted, Adam will tell us, excuse me, Paul will tell us in Romans chapter 5, That sin entered the world through Adam, and because of Adam's sin, all of the world fell under the curse of death. So Adam is held responsible for the first sin, even though literally and physically he was not the first one to participate in sin. Eve, of course, was created second, and When she was created, God declared her to be Adam's helpmeet. She is, in other words, oriented around Adam's tasks. And then we noted how God even gave Adam the task of naming Eve, exercising and expressing already a kind of headship over her. And in all these ways, we are to realize these differentiations that are there in the created order. That Adam and Eve, while they in a combined way reflect God's image, they're not interchangeable. There are social differences and there are biological differences that are intentional in God's design. They, they operate even down at the molecular level, even at the level of, of, of uh, hormones and chromosomes, so that the biological way that we are designed yields or gives shape to the sort of social differences that are there 
through things like hormonal differences. We are, in other words, uniquely fitted and designed to fulfill the role that God has created for us. Now, as we noted last week as well, this is increasingly denied by many people. They try to suggest that these distinctions, even these gender distinctions, are, are not biological, but they are social in the sense that uh, it is a social contract. In other words, they are only there, the distinctions are only there because we all agree that they're there, and if we don't agree that they're there anymore, then they don't exist anymore. Uh, they believe that there is no fundamental basis for these gender distinctions. And, or you could say it this way, society wants you to believe that the physical differences have no metaphysical basis. But for Jesus, that's clearly not true. And for every believer, that's clearly not true. These are things that were designed by God in our very human nature. And they're to be celebrated, and they're to be treasured, and they're to be admired, particularly through the institution of marriage. And so, before Jesus gets to anything else, he appeals back to the most fundamental, basic element of humanity to establish God's will for marriage. And he's highlighting how marriage then becomes a unique reflection of God's image. God created one and out of that one made two and now through marriage those two become one. In fact, this is what Jesus points to next after citing Genesis 1:27, he then goes to chapter 2 and cites verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. That word for holding fast is a, an ancient word for glue to the extent that they had glue or they could manufacture glue this is the way they spoke of it they even used the word to talk about sort of the dynamic of the body how the skin attaches to the muscles they didn't understand anatomically or molecularly how that all took place but they noticed the impact of it and they used this word for glue to talk about the integration of the skin with the body this is what's happening in marriage. You're becoming a new entity together, interwoven at that sort of, at that sort of uh, basic level. And, of course, Jesus cites this verse because he embraces all of this as the normative pattern of what God did because the two, male and female, originally made out of one, are now joined together again. D.A. Carson says, quote, the one flesh in every marriage between a man and a woman is a reenactment of and a testimony to the very structure of humanity as God created it, end quote. In other words, this marriage, as God designs it, gets at the very heart of our humanity. It gets at the heart of our humanity. And as we began to introduce last week, this is where the important reflection then comes as we speak about divorce or any other variation from marriage. God's created order gets at who we are as humans. He established this pattern and to try to eliminate that pattern with any other equation, anything other than one man and one woman joined together 
indissolubly for life is to eliminate at a fundamental level who we are as humans. And so all forms of deviation, all forms of infidelity to that pattern, whether it is adultery, whether it is gender confusion, whether it is polygamy. By the way, I don't know if you're following the stories coming out of Massachusetts. They started to unfold a couple of years ago in 2020 when in the height of the pandemic, uh, a suburb of Boston named Somerville passed for the first time ever a domestic partnership ordinance that multiple uh, that that uh, excuse me that uh, identified or recognized multiple partners in a relationship they uh they in other words embraced what they call polyamorous or polygamous relationships really so that people who claim to be together in one family can all have access to basic what they consider to be basic civil rights like health care and other rights and benefits that come from your employer. And they defined all of this as any partnership that fulfills six criteria, that is, people who are in a mutual relationship of support, of caring, of commitment, who intend to remain in the relationship, who reside together, and who consider themselves to be a family. Those people, they tell us, are recognized now in this civil partnership. Following year, Cambridge, Massachusetts, follows suit, passing their own polygamy ordinance, and then Arlington, Massachusetts, and now the Polyamory Legal Advocacy Coalition, or PLAC, has been formed for the purpose of forcing other municipalities around the nation to recognize these same partnerships. Those of us who watched the slow demise of the traditional view of marriage as people fought for the establishment of same-sex unions, we understand how this goes. You start by making claims for domestic partnerships for the sake of certain rights and benefits, and then it quickly unfolds to legalized marriage. But none of this reflects God's design, the way He intended marriage to be. And all of it undercuts at the very core your humanity. Another way to say that is deviations from God's design for marriage dehumanizes people. It dehumanizes people. If you're engaged in sexual immorality and adultery, it is a dehumanizing activity. You're not treating other people the way that they ought to be treated as human beings. If you're engaged in in homosexual relationship, you're dehumanizing the people that you are participating with. In polygamy, you're dehumanizing those who are wrapped up in that kind of deception. In all of these ways, you're undercutting at the very core the way that God made humanity in violating His pattern. 
I know the world doesn't get this. The world has tried to reduce marriage down to nothing more than a vehicle of self-fulfillment. And so marriage is now defined by, by that alone, self-fulfillment. As long as it's fulfilling, as long as it's sort of meeting my needs, as long as it's servicing however I want to define those needs, then it is called a marriage. And it will be called a marriage in any form that I want it to be called a marriage, any form that I find personally fulfilling. And when it's no longer personally fulfilling, then we end the marriage and that's it. But Jesus reaches beyond all of those things to say that God's design, His original design, eliminates all of those issues. And of course, divorce, as I said, is one of those that's eliminated. Divorce is typically, in almost all cases, for the sake of facilitating some new relationship, some new union, some new Marriage, And so it introduces a third person into the equation or a fourth person or a fifth person or on and on and on, however many. But it abandons the created pattern of one man and one woman for life, which is our third insight that we come to this morning in the passage. God's design for marriage restricts divorce. God's design for marriage restricts divorce. This is Jesus' conclusion in verse 6. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. As I said at the beginning, marriage is fundamentally a theological institution. It's not ultimately the state, and really it's not ultimately even the church that joins people together in marriage. It's God. He is the only one who establishes marriage. He is the one who joins anyone together if they are joined together in marriage. And so when you are joined together, you're joined together the way He designed it because He designed it as a reflection, a twofold reflection of His image. Man by himself could not reflect the image of God. Woman by herself could not reflect the image of God. He made them in His image, male and female He made them. And so, Jesus, building off of that idea of the way that God ordained marriage, can speak of God joining every man and every woman together who marries. And because God is the designer and the rightful creator of every marriage union, there is a permanence to it, a durability to it. No man or woman is to separate it. This is the consequence of everything that God has told us. So marriage is not just some temporary arrangement for your self-fulfillment. It is at a fundamental level the joining of two people into a permanent new existence together as one. Now, hearing all of that raises all kinds of questions, obviously, and in the minds of Jesus' listeners, it raised one serious question. If what you're saying is true, then why in the world does the Old Testament even discuss divorce? Because in one prominent verse in Deuteronomy 24, Moses gives an instruction that if a man is divorced, he is to write a certificate of divorce before he sends his wife Away, And that's what they quote to him in verse 7. Why then did Moses command one 
to give a certificate of divorce. Now this in some ways is not even a legitimate theological question. This is really just a ruse. This is really just an attempt to proof text some verse of Scripture to justify what was already their sinful desires. They wanted to divorce their wives. They wanted to have easy divorce in the first century. And so they went and found a verse that allowed them to do that. And they manipulated the verse to that end. But Jesus exposes them here and he does it in a very subtle way. You'll notice in his answer in verse 8 that he responds to them. And, and when he does that, he makes a subtle change in terminology. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you. Now notice, he doesn't repeat their terminology, command. This isn't a command. Moses didn't command you to divorce. He allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. The law permitted it, but it didn't command it. And it permitted it. For certain reasons, there were a number of these kinds of concessions that you see in the law of God, God, concessions that God made to Israel in their hardened heart. And he made these concessions all the time. And one of the first ones was just their demand for a king. You may remember God had established the the, uh, nation of Israel as what we call a theocracy meaning that he was to be their king. And Samuel even makes this clear to Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 12, whenever they're demanding a king. They actually demanded a king back in chapter 9. And Samuel makes clear to them, God is your king. But because you keep demanding a human king, God concedes. God makes an allowance for you to have a human monarchy. But that is not his original plan. And you see it in other fashions and other ways. God makes these kind of allowances or these kind of concessions to, to the human institutions that Israel would cling to, whether in some cases polygamy. There are actually laws in, God's, uh, in, in the Mosaic Code that govern how you treat your second wife, even though that was not the institution God wanted to establish. Still, God establishes rules to regulate so that the corruption was in some sense contained if they, through their hardened hearts, insisted on those kinds of patterns. Even slavery. God doesn't establish slavery, but He makes concessions because He understands that Israel would do it anyway, and so He creates laws that govern slavery because He knew their hardened hearts would lead them into this. And so the law is doing this all the time. It's making concessions to the hardness of Israel's heart. And that's what Jesus says Deuteronomy 24 was. It was a concession because of the hardness of Israel's heart. They had, they had made sort of a determination that they were going to go their own way. Even while Moses was up on the mountain receiving the law, they were down at the foot of the mountain creating a, an idolatrous image, bowing down and worship, worshiping it and creating a, 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 a sinful and sexually immoral festival that they were engaged in as Moses made his way down the mountain. Later on, Moses would commission a sort of mass policing 
of this whole event that led to 3,000 people being slaughtered. After that, there was another instance in Numbers where there were 24,000 people who were slaughtered because they engaged in sexual immorality with Moabite women. This was, in fact, the way that God intended His law to be functioning. He created the law to uphold the institution of marriage as He designed it. He said, for example, in the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. He says in another one of the Ten Commandments, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And then He says later in Leviticus chapter 20, if there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, the one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. End of discussion, end of corruption. You deal with it by eliminating it. You deal with it by public execution. And as I said, Israel actually carried this out in the early days, but it soon became obvious that Israel was not going to stop. They continued to turn to immorality again and again and again. And it became obvious that if they were to uphold the ideal of the law, that the entire population of Israel would virtually be eliminated. And this is why you see Israel and their history is literally full of examples of violations of God's covenant ideal for marriage. You see their kings, David, with multiple wives. He's not punished with death after his affair with Bathsheba. In fact, he goes on to marry her and he marries other women. You see his son, Solomon, even multiplying his father's adulteries and yet not suffering the death penalty. You see Israel engaging in, uh, in prostitution. You see them engaging in temple prostitution and regular prostitution. You see them engaging in, in uh, uh, polygamous marriages with their pagan uh, uh, neighbors. And so all, for all these reasons, because of the hardness of Israel's heart, because of their repeated sexual immorality, because of the potential consequences, the decimating consequences of all of this, God made a concession. And the concession was that the guilty party did not need to die. The guilty party did not need to die. They could instead dissolve the marriage union through divorce. They could dissolve it through divorce, which is what Jesus explains in verse 9. And I say to you that whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Because God's original design is clear, there are no other excuses. There are no other reasons. There are no other allowances here. But there is this one exception on the basis of, of sexual immorality, meaning that the one who is engaged in sexual immorality, instead of facing the consequence of death can have his life spared, but the innocent spouse may still want to be out of that defiled union, that corrupted union, and that spouse may decide that they want to escape the marriage through not having their guilty spouse executed, but by divorcing them. 
And so Jesus notes this one exception. And he upholds it, by the way. This isn't something that changes from the Old Testament to the New Testament. This is an allowance that continues to go on because of the hardness of heart, because of the weakness and the fallibility of humanity. By the way, people have sometimes noted that it's not technically adultery here. It's the word porneia, which is more of a broad word for sexual immorality. But in the modern context, obviously, we have uh, adopted that word to uh, coin the phrase pornography. And so there are some people who, who latch onto that and say, well, this must then include all kinds of, of sexual deviation, including even sort of lustful thoughts in your mind. And so therefore, marriage, uh, excuse me, divorce is allowable in a broad range of circumstances, a broad range of sort of unfaithfulness, even at the level of your heart. And they justify this to some extent by Jesus's own words back in the Sermon on the Mount, where he said that a person who looks on someone else and lusts after them in their heart is guilty of adultery, just like those who are angry at someone else are guilty of murder. But of course, the point in all of that is not that those who are angry ought to be executed any more than those who are lustful ought to be executed. The penalty, in other words, for those sort of internal desires is not the point. The point is that each one of us are exposed as we in self-righteousness look down on others. Every one of us who are assuming that we are without sin, we have that same sort of sinful desire living in our hearts. But when it comes to the issue of marriage, Jesus is clear. It is the violation of the original pattern of one man and one woman for life, which destroys the marriage union. God's original design would have called, as I said, for the innocent spouse to be released from their marriage bond through the execution of their partner. They would have been released from the bondage to that lifelong commitment to an unfaithful partner, and they would have been free at that point to go out and to find a new partner because they would have been essentially at that point a widow or a widower. But instead of executing their partner, God dissolves the marriage union by divorce, which then still frees up the innocent spouse, if they so choose, to go out and to seek remarriage. Now, again, the law doesn't command this. This isn't required by God's law. This is allowed, Jesus says. In fact, there are many cases where this kind of sexual immorality, as, as devastating as it is, does not lead to the end of a marriage. In fact, it leads to a deepening expression of the love of Christ as there is brokenness and there is confession and there is repentance. As people overcome the damage that is done, the devastation that comes from these kinds of violations, God uses that to put on display a wonderful testimony of grace and mercy and forgiveness. And, and they realize that this kind of immorality, while it does have sort of wide-ranging and deep impact, and while its, uh, while its effects are felt for years, 
there is also the possibility of forgiveness. As a matter of fact, while, while divorce is not in fact mandated in those kinds of situations, what is mandated is forgiveness. Forgiveness is mandated. Jesus tells us that when someone comes and asks us for forgiveness, because of the forgiveness that we receive, that we extend forgiveness. That, of course, doesn't mean that the forgiveness necessarily rebuilds the relationship. The innocent spouse still has that allowance for divorce, but, but if they choose not to exercise it, God may very well take them down the pathway of extending deep grace, of rebuilding trust, the slow and painful process of many, many years of conversation and rebuilding all that has been devastated and broken into something that is a beautiful picture of His love and grace and mercy. So Jesus says this is it. This is God's design. His design is one man, one woman for life, and there are no deviations from it except for this one cause. Now, it's interesting as you move on through the New Testament, when you come to this issue in the later epistles, what we find is that the apostles upheld this. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, reaffirms this teaching in verse 10, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. In other words, this doesn't come, doesn't originate with me. This comes from the Lord. I give this charge, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not separate from her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife. Those aren't my words, he says. Those are the Lord's words. So, so Paul upholds this same design, the same sort of created order, the way that Jesus uh, upheld it. But then he adds... A second point, to the rest, I say, and now he tells us, I, not the Lord. So now, now Paul's saying, I want to say something, and this doesn't originate with the Lord. These are, these are divine insights that have come to me as one of God's apostles and one of his inspired writers of Scripture. I say, not the Lord, that if a brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. At this point, nothing's changed. It's the same message, the same standard. But Paul says in verse 15, But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved, but God has called you to peace. We don't have time to fully unpack this, but it's obvious that Paul is writing to people who were contemplating divorce. Maybe they were in an unhappy marriage, a difficult and dissatisfying relationship because they, have, they found themselves married to an unbeliever and they began to try to convince themselves that God would want them to separate. They told themselves that this would be God's will. The, the conclusion was that they could be more glorifying to God if they weren't under the weight and the burden of having to live with this kind of oppressive environment all the time. And so somehow if they could get out of this, they would be more spiritually the, spiritual, they would be more happy, they would be more useful or whatever it might be. And Paul tells them that no matter what you're telling yourself, if you're in a marriage and the 
partner does not want to leave, remain married. But then in those rare cases where you have a, an unbelieving spouse who after realizing your faith and maybe resenting you for it, they feel the conviction in their own hearts of having to live with a believer all the time. The barbs in their conscience have become so painful, they want out. And so they leave. In this case, Paul says that you're also free. You're no longer under any obligation. You're no longer bound in that situation. You're not, the word he uses is enslaved, meaning that you're not in the marriage commitment anymore. They have left, they have separated. You're not to fight against it. You're not to go to court and battle it. You're not to resist it. You're not to refuse to sign the papers or any of those other things. You are to let it go. And you let it go and you realize that you don't bear the guilt and you don't bear the responsibility and you no longer bear the commitment to that original relationship. Now this obviously applies in a number of situations. It obviously applies in what we just call abandonment. They just leave the home. They leave the home of their own volition uh, you know, maybe they're pursuing another relationship, but in some cases they just leave because they don't want to deal with you and your Christian convictions any longer. In some cases, it is their other behavior that leads to them abandoning the marriage. Maybe not voluntarily, but involuntarily. That is to say that they're not engaging in any kind of sexual immorality, but they might be engaging in some other unlawful or illegal or criminal Activity And because of that, they come under the, the uh, uh, jurisdiction of the civil authorities. They violated the law in some way and they are prosecuted in a court of law, maybe in some cases imprisoned for a number of years. They have, in that sense, abandoned the marriage. Could be any number of things, any number of violations of the law. Abusive activity. Abuse of their spouse, abuse of their children, abuse of substances, abuse of other laws. But they have, by their own volition, abandoned the relationship. In those situations, Paul says you're free. But apart from that, apart from that, God's standard holds. Doesn't matter whether you feel fulfilled doesn't matter whether you're tired and weary. doesn't matter whether you imagine that you would be better off without this sort of burden around you of this unhappy relationship. It doesn't matter. It is dehumanizing for you to violate God's image as expressed in marriage. Now all this leads to a kind of response from the disciples of shock. And it gives us a final insight into this issue of marriage and divorce. And it comes to us in verses 10 through 12. God's design for marriage is not for everyone. His design for marriage is not for everyone. This, this kind of is the response from the disciples who in verse 10 say, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. I mean, we don't know if they 
are saying that sort of half-jokingly or if it's serious. It could have been that they, were, they had never heard anything like this. As I said, there was widespread uh, acceptance of divorce in the, in the first century. Some of this was the consequence of their marriage arrangements. They still largely had arranged marriages. You may have known who your spouse was before you were married, but you typically had not spent a lot of time with them. You might have grown up in the same village, but, but boys and girls didn't spend unattended time together. And so you were uh, put into an arranged marriage, sometimes with someone you barely knew. And now these guys contemplating the possibility of that uh, were, were, were thinking to themselves, well, if that's the situation, I don't want to be bound together with someone that I'm not going to be satisfied with for the rest of my life because that's God's design, you're saying. And so they say, maybe it's just better not to marry after all. Well, Jesus says in verse 11, not everyone can receive that, but only those to whom it's given. Not everyone can receive that, meaning not everyone can, can receive, not everyone can embrace what you're saying here. Not everyone can embrace the idea of not marrying. In fact, he calls it a gift. Not everyone has been given this, or, or he says not everyone can receive it, but only those to whom it's given. It's the same way that Paul describes singleness in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says, I wish that all of you were as I myself am. He was, he was single when he wrote this. He says, but each one has his own gift from God. So Paul recognizes that his singleness was a gift that was given to him. It was a, the way that God had uniquely equipped him for the role that he was fulfilling. And Jesus is telling the apostles the same way. Not everyone has that gift. Not everyone can be content in a life of singleness. And so Jesus uses an image of a eunuch to illustrate his point in verse 12. Not necessarily endorsing the idea of physical sterilization, but but using the idea of a eunuch to set up what is essentially a picture of a passive status. Because as he says, some people are eunuchs from their birth. They didn't choose it. They were just born this way. They were born possibly with some sort of defect that made them where they were not able to marry. Other people were made eunuchs by men. That is to say they were physically sterilized. This was common practice in the ancient world, particularly in the courts of royalty. They would want attendance for their, uh, for their multiple wives, and all those men would have been physically sterilized. But the, the point is still the same. They had it done to them. They were passive. Others, he says made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom, God, uh, kingdom of God. And the implication is that they made this choice because they had already received the gift. They decided that since they did not really have this desire for marriage, or maybe a better way to say it is because they have a contentment with singleness, because God had given them the gift of contentment, they decided to utilize that gift for the sake of God's kingdom, and they committed themselves to a life of singleness. Unfortunately, people in church history haven't always understood 
the point of Jesus' words here is verse 12 is really illustrating verse 11. And so they've taken this overly literally and some people have literally sterilized themselves. But, but his point is that some people find themselves in this state of singleness and they embrace it and they welcome it and they realize the unique opportunities it provides for them, opportunities that don't come to married people. They're not encumbered by the cares and the responsibilities of a family. They're not engaged in all of the time and commitment that comes with either a wife or children. And all of this allows them to be in service to the Lord, to others, to the church, or whatever it might be, without worrying about the neglect that they might be inflicting on their family. They can even become more bold. They can take on risk. They can do things that could potentially bring about consequences, loss of employment, even loss of their life. They can do that more freely because they're not worried about leaving their family unprotected or unprovided for. But the point Jesus is making is not many people have that gift. Not many people have that contentment. And so they realize that marriage is in their future. And God has designed them that way. But in that design, He has designed them to be with one partner, one husband, one wife for the rest of their days. Now obviously this has serious serious implications it means first all first of all that we as believers must take marriage extremely seriously as i said it is dehumanizing to not embrace god's design for marriage it dehumanizes the people who are engaged in the deviant behavior that violates his designed order we also take sexual immorality very seriously god didn't design us to be with multiple people he designed us to be with one person and so we don't embrace that we don't affirm that in fact we recognize that that in itself is dehumanizing it's dehumanizing to the people that you are pursuing and engaging in that behavior with dehumanizes you distorts your understanding of who you are as a person and the way God has created you to operate and to function. We take very seriously then the consideration of a marriage partner. We think that through because we realize that this is not some temporary, some temporary institution, some temporary relationship. We examine to make sure that the person that we're committing ourselves to has the, the evidence of the kind of character. Maybe not fully shaped and fully formed into what God would make them to be, but the evidence of the kind of heart and character that is pursuing Christ-likeness, that is yielded to the truth of God's law. But when, that when it finds correction, when someone brings truth from God's law or God's word into their life, their desire is to mold their lives to it. Even if it's not perfect, the desire is there. 
And so we find those kinds of people and we understand that it might be a lifelong process of walking together through the difficulties of our own weakness and the trials that come to us through this life. But it's a lifelong process. A process where God is perfecting us and shaping us and making us into the full representation of His image. This is God's design. And it's a design for blessing. Marriage is not a merely a vehicle for, for self-fulfillment. But there is incredible fulfillment for those who understand the way God's made it. For those who embrace their maker and their creator and understand the design that he's beautifully put together. And they yield themselves to it. They commit themselves to it. And they experience the full bloom of everything God intended them to be as His image. Lord, these are such important truths. They are, especially in our day of confusion, such important truths for us to embrace and uphold the way that You've made us male and female. I pray for us as a church that we would be those who first and foremost clearly understand these realities. We understand them, we embrace them, and we commit ourselves to them in our own life, in our own marriages, in our own homes. And then as a body of Christ, that we willingly and clearly and boldly proclaim the same message that our our Savior proclaimed. The way that you made us is not dispensable. It is fundamental. And those who violate it will suffer the consequences. Help us, Lord, that we would be able to communicate the dignity and the morality and the blessing of your design for men and women. And we want to communicate it not only through words but through our actions. We want to live it out in the full blessing of the way that you've made us. Lord, we'll do that only by your power, only by the way that you fill us with your spirit and teach us your truth. And Lord, as you do that, and as we experience the full blessing of it, it is our hope and desire that the world would know the truth by the way that we live out the gospel. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.